All right, before we uh, get into the passages of Scripture today, let me start with a story, a true story, of um, Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon. He was born in 1759 to a non-religious family, and at age 19, he was accepted into King's uh, College, and he was told uh, that he would uh, have to take communion at some point. And not having a religious background, this actually terrified him. He was not sure, what does this even mean? What do I do? I'm not a great person. How can I receive communion? And so uh, he started searching for answers. What is communion? What does it mean? How can I maybe clean my life up a little bit more? And, uh, but there were no other Christians on campus, which is interesting. You know, at that era, kind of close to the end of uh, the 1700s, uh, King's College, you'd, you'd expect it to be more Christianized. It was actually very secular. I uh, could find no other Christians to answer his questions, so he started reading, started studying. And he came across something. He discovered that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they believed that if they made a sacrifice to God, their sin would be taken from them and transferred onto the sacrifice. And so they would no longer be held accountable for their sin. They'd be forgiven of their sin. Their sin would be taken away by a substitution. And in discovering this, he suddenly woke up to the reality and the truth of the the Christian gospel that Jesus is our sacrifice, Jesus is our substitute, and Jesus can transfer our sin from us onto himself. And so that Easter, he gave his life to Christ and took communion. So he had a big change. He had become a believer now at this point. But history tells us that actually his, some, some character defects remained with him, which if you've been a Christian any length of time or you know other Christians, you know this is the way it goes. So his kind of naked pride that he had and his impetuousness remained. He kind of had an air of self-assertiveness about him. He could be a bit harsh at times. One story is told, uh, he was visiting a fellow pastor, a guy called Henry Venn, and after visiting with their family, uh, Charles Simeon left, and Henry's daughters then were questioning their dad about this Charles Simeon guy, saying, what's up with, with this guy? And the father responded, uh, Henry Venn responded by saying, uh, go, go and pick me a, a peach from the garden. And his girls say, well, it's, they're not ripe. It's not that season yet. They're not ready yet. You know, why, why would you want a, a firm, green, you know, unsweet uh, piece of fruit? And he said, well, if you give that fruit a little bit more time, it just needs a little bit more sun, a few more showers, and then it'll be, it'll be ready. It'll be ripe. It'll be sweet. And he said to his girls, he says, so it is with Mr. Simeon, which is a great, very gracious perspective. To have. But it wasn't all bad. Simeon was actually quite a humble person, also a very generous person. So he gave almost all of his excess income to the poor and needy uh, in his community. And he didn't want money to control him. And so even though his rich brother's inheritance should have gone to him, he forewent it because he didn't want to be controlled by money. He eventually received uh, an offer of a pastorate at Trinity Church. Great name for a church. But the problem was the parishioners there didn't want him. They wanted the assistant uh, pastor or the the assistant uh, guy there, uh, Mr. Hammond. And it was one of the honors of whoever was the appointed pastor to uh, not just to obviously preach on a Sunday morning, but to also hold uh, biblical lectures on Sunday afternoons. This was part of their tradition. And the uh, church parishioners snubbed Simeon, uh, Charles Simeon, by... uh, electing uh, Mr. Hammond, the, the uh, assistant pastor, to do these lectures. This happened for five years. Then at the end of five years, they snubbed him again and elected another man from the congregation for another seven years to uh, give these lectures on a Sunday afternoon. So for the first 12 years of his ministry, he faced opposition from his own congregation, his own parishioners. But it wasn't even, it was, it was even worse than this. Some of the people who I can't, I, this is hard to imagine, but back in that day, people used to have locks on their pews. And so some of the parishioners would lock their pews so that people couldn't come to the service. And so uh, Charles 
then of his own cost, decided to buy some extra chairs and tried to fit them in in different parts of the, the auditorium or the, the sanctuary. But the church parishioners threw the chairs away. They wouldn't have any of it. It was a bad situation. He went house to house trying to meet people and minister to people and nobody would welcome him. He had a lot of private moments of weeping. It was a bad situation. Even the university that he uh, lectured at, he, he was on, on a faculty member in a, in a university who would lecture students there repeatedly would cause disruptions. Uh, even during his church services, they would throw stones at the stained glass window. One group of graduates actually uh, conspired to attack him after one of his services, and but fortunately, by chance, he, he left through a different doorway, and they couldn't, couldn't get to him. It was a bad uh, situation, to say the least. And then, to make it even worse, one of his fellow colleagues at the university, once Charles was then able to give these Sunday afternoon lectures, he started a rival lecture at the same time to steal students away from trials. It was a bad situation all around, but it gets even worse. He, he had health failings. He, at one point, he, he basically lost his voice. His voice became extremely weak, and he, it said that when uh, he would finish preaching, he said he would feel more dead than alive. How would he continue as a pastor, as a minister, as a preacher of the gospel? How would he continue facing these difficulties. Some of the hostility he faced, a big part of it was just the congregation. They just didn't want him in the first place, and they did everything they could to try and discourage him and get rid of him, and it just spiraled from there. It just got out of control from there, but the other thing that made it hard was his temperament. His temperament did not help the situation. It said of him that he would get angry about trivial things, inconsequential things. He would get, he had this bad habit of speaking in a very angry way about things that just didn't really matter. There's one story that's told at uh, his friend Mr. Hankinson's house. He was visiting this friend, Mr. Hankinson, and the, the, the servant there was stoking the fire. And apparently Charles Simeon was so irritated by how this man was stoking the fire, he swatted him on the back. And then that same servant, as Charles Simeon was preparing to go, mixed up one of the bridles, and Charles got so angry, so upset, he erupted verbally, verbal violence, against the man. And Mr. Hankinson sat down quickly before Charles had left, sat down quickly and wrote a letter to him. And he put the letter in his bag before he left so he could read it later on. And in the letter, later on, he gets home and he finds the letter. Mr. Hankinson had written it from the perspective of the servant. And it said to the effect of, I don't know, or for somebody who can preach so well and pray so well, I don't understand how you could be in such a passion about nothing and not bridle your own tongue. That was the letter. Now... He signed it, it was from Mr. Hankinson, but he signed it from the servant, whose name was John, I believe, but he gave him a different last name. He said it was signed it from John Softly, trying to soften the blow, I guess, a little bit. It was a forthright challenge. It was a direct confrontation, a direct correction towards Charles Simeon, and the, the question of his response remained. How would he respond with all the stress he was under, all the pressure he was under? Would he respond in a humble, gracious way, uh, but also because of his temperament. How would he respond to this? Well, he wrote back. I think it was April 12th, 1804, I believe the date, because we have the copy of the letter. He wrote a response. Let me pause the story there. I'm going to tell you his response at the end of the sermon. It relates to our subject matter, our focus and theme for today, and our passages of Scripture we're going to look at today. We're in our series called Being the Church. And I hope this has been a good series for you. We're seven weeks into this is episode seven of our ongoing saga, and uh, we can, we've got I don't know eleven weeks of this. So we're getting we're on the second half of this, the back end of this series. And today uh, we're going to look at the subject matter of humble confrontation. How do how do we go about constructively 
confronting each other. Now, this topic will immediately make a lot of people very nervous, indeed, like, oh my gosh, confrontations, conflict between people, conflict is, we'll we'll do anything to avoid conflict. Even people that seem to like it will still avoid it at times uh, because it's difficult. And when conflict is done badly, when confrontation happens poorly, oh, it has terrible effects, doesn't it? We're hurt, we're harmed, we're bothered, we're, we're insulted, we're offended. Relationships can, can, can break over this kind of stuff, but sometimes confrontation is absolutely unavoidable, absolutely necessary, but if we avoid it, the consequences, the outworking of avoiding a necessary confrontation can be even more devastating if we don't take action. The reason that we might have to be confronted ourselves or confront others is because we're all a bit stupid sometimes. And we get ourselves in trouble. We do things we shouldn't do. We believe things we shouldn't believe. We say things we shouldn't say. We start behaving or acting or indicating things in a certain way, and we're blind to it. We can't see this as destructive. We can't see where this would lead. We can't see the repercussions of it, even in the immediate or in the future. And so we all need to be rescued sometimes. We all need to be rescued sometimes. And Jesus, in his kindness, in his grace, What's he done? In the grace of Jesus, he has intervened, intersected us, and he's confronted us about our sin, challenged us by his grace. And so there are times when we're called to either be on the receiving end of this or to be those who are confronting fellow Christians, even if you, hey, you work in any kind of work environment you have. If you're in a family, you're in a family, there are moments of confrontation. Confrontation is absolutely unavoidable. If you want to have good relationships, you've got to learn how to do it well. And when we're in danger, when we're facing harm, either harming ourselves or others, I hope that we all have people in our lives that love us enough to confront us and to steer us back on track. That's what Jesus, in his kindness, that's what he's done for us, and that's what we must do for others. There are five terms the Bible uses to describe confrontation. So five words, so some overlap here, but they, uh, there's some nuance to them as well. So we have, uh, I think they should come up here on the screen, we have exhort, admonish, correct, reproof, and rebuke. And these are on a spectrum, they range from soft to harsh. The Apostle Peter starts off, uh, or we can start with this number one here, Apostle Peter in First uh, Peter chapter 5 He exhorts the elders there, or the pastors of the church. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So he's exhorting fellow leaders, fellow pastors, saying, uh, hey, make sure you shepherd the flock of God. Now, some people may not, we talked about exhortation recently in another sermon. Some people may not put exhortation in the category of confrontation, I will, I think it's the softest form of confrontation, essentially to exhort somebody is to call somebody alongside or to come alongside somebody and to urge them in a particular thing, to give them particular instructions or to strongly encourage them, right? It might be a, a friendly challenge or a strong recommendation to give to somebody. This is I consider this to be on the lower level of some kind of confrontation because you're essentially being a little pushy towards somebody. You know, Scripture tells you, you know, an exhortation is that way. You're, you're really t- telling someone, look, I th- really think you should do this. Like, I, I really mean it. Like, I'm exhorting you uh, to do this. So but it's very soft because we're not, not criticizing, not correcting, just steering somebody in a particular direction. Then uh, the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Thessalonian Christians and he tells them to admonish people who are lazy. And so admonishment is about giving a warning or a caution to somebody. So we see this, I think it's Second Tim, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians 5. Apostle Paul says, we, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. So that's people who are being lazy. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. So that be patient gives us some sense of which we're to do these kind of confrontations. But... An admonition is, is, is the second 
step, I guess, on the, on the spectrum of confrontation. And like I said, this is to warn, this is to caution somebody. So this is, again, a much softer confrontation because it's not necessarily bringing a criticism to somebody that they've done something wrong. It's, it, maybe it could be that at times, but it's especially warning somebody about what may come in the future. That, hey, if you continue down this path or if you take that step that you said you were going to take, or if you, if you do more of the thing you've been doing, this is going to be the consequence. This is, I'm going to, I want to warn you, I want to caution you, I want to admonish you to not do that. It's, it's, it's a soft, softer confrontation. Um, then we have a correction, or to correct somebody. So I think it's uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Talking about God's word, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, right? That we may be complete and equipped for every good work. So, the idea of correcting, bringing correction, is the idea of straightening up, straightening something, or restoring something, or rectifying. And this now is, it is in the realm of, uh, there's something more, there, there is some criticism here because. But it's redemptive, right? Because it's saying to, to be correct is, is to say you, you were doing this thing correctly or you were doing it well, but you've, something's a little off. Something's got a little wonky. Something's going in the wrong direction. And we need to, bring, need to be brought back to how you were living before, how you were speaking before, how you were behaving before. That is a correction. And corrections can be, more, can be kind of broad. So in, in this verse, you know, the word of God confronting us and correcting us. Every time you open the scripture, there's something in there that pinpoints something in your heart that says, oh yeah, I, I need to grow in that. Yeah, I need help with that. Yeah, I need to do better with that. The word of God has this general correction for us and we can play that role in each other's lives as well that we need to be restored. We need to be rectified. Now the verse we just looked at, it also talks about reproof. Use the word reproof there in 2 Timothy. Um, yeah, there it is, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16. It God's word is helpful for reproof. Now what is what is a reproof? This is, uh, now we're well in the territory here of confrontation, of, of more direct, a little bit harsher, a little bit stronger confrontation. And to, to reprove somebody or to give a reproof uh, is to chastise somebody. Uh, man, that doesn't sound good, does it? To, to, to be chastised. Uh, and this uh, means with, uh, to confront somebody with, with evidence or with proof. It's in, the, it's in the word, right? The word proof. It's in the word reproof. So it, this means to, you know, this isn't like an empty accusation where it's, it's like, hey, you hurt my feelings or I just don't like you or, you know, it's va a vague sense of correction about something. No, this is very specific, very deliberate. It also kind of means to, to test somebody with, with something they've done to be, you know, hey, this is what's happened and you need to, you wouldn't do it like in a, in a, in a a court of law, like a lawyer, you know, <laughs> kind of uh, talking to somebody on the, on the witness stand or interrogating someone, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it in that sense. But in a similar sense, you're essentially presenting some kind of proof, some kind of evidence that is a test against the person's character. Like they're being, you're being chastised, challenged about what, is, what can be observed that has been done uh, wrongly or incorrectly. So there's, but you might think, well, that shouldn't that be the end of it? Shouldn't that be the? But there's, there's, there's one final one here. I know everyone's feeling really uncomfortable, like the idea of just how. When does this happen? You know, does this just happen on Sundays? When? What does it happen? You know, uh, when? When do people get, get get corrected about things and confronted about things? So uh, the last one is to rebuke. To rebuke. This again. This is the final and most severe way to give a confrontation or correction to somebody. So a rebuke is to refute somebody, direct refutation of them, to expose somebody, uh, to convict somebody. Or you could even say, to sometimes it can be understood to even bring shame upon somebody. So Paul writes to Titus, he says in uh, Titus chapter 1, he says, therefore rebuke them sharply. Don't miss the word sharply. I know, see, some of, the, some of the criticisms of Christians and leaders at times is that they're just not being nice enough, or that's just too harsh. Or it's just, there are times when it has to be sharp, all right? Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. 
Now, as it relates to rebukes, these are, specifically the way the Apostle Paul talks about rebukes, he typically refers to them uh, as public things where somebody is a false teacher, somebody is leading Christians astray. They're polluting scripture, polluting truth, teaching something that's false, tying people up in, in legalism or, or false ide- ideas, false theology, and, and, and deceiving people, um, bringing you know, um, division within the church. And so when we're talking about a rebuke, oftentimes it's, it's at that level. It's very serious. It's a very serious offense, right? You're not going to rebuke somebody just because, you know, they, they, they spelled their name wrong on their name tag on a Sunday morning, right? Uh, you, you're not even going to, you, you might exhort them. Hey, I exhort you to write your name properly. All right, you might do that. That's the softest, softest one there. That was, I made that example up on the spot. wasn't the best example. You get where I'm going with this. So a rebuke is the harshest, is the most severe, but it is reserved for those very extreme circumstances. Often it could be public, doesn't always mean it's public. And you might struggle with the idea of shaming people. Should we shame people? Actually, uh, if people will not listen to reason, all other circumstances have been, or all other possible steps have been taken uh, to resolve something, and the nature of it is so severe, I will say public shame is a powerful tool to protect people. Because if you publicly have to call somebody out about something, again, this would be very severe. This does not happen very often. Typically, it's leaders doing this kind of thing. If it has to happen, here's what, what you do is you, you, you bring to light what somebody deviant they're doing, trying to bring you know, division in the church or teaching false doctrine. You bring it to light. What happens is, ideally, that wakes everybody up to it. Everyone sees, because you're shining a light on it. So everyone sees, oh, this is bad. Yeah, I see what they're doing. That is a shameful thing. That is shameful for that person to have that revealed. But it brings it to the light. In that situation, then, what happens is it takes away their power. So then the rest of the flock knows, yeah, I shouldn't really listen to that. That's not healthy. That's not good. That's going in the wrong direction. So it protects the flock. Then the person themselves has two options. They either, because they've been shamed and lost their power, they either either leave, which is a win for the church, this divisive, you know, person who's not doing us any good as a wolf in sheep's clothing, clothing, now they've gone, that's good for the church. Or, hopefully, they might be so humbled by this that they say, I can't bear my reputation, I can't bear the shame of this, and so I'm willing to rectify it. Now I'm willing to resolve it, and I want to work at that. That's the ideal outcome. That's the outcome you want to have. Now, that's, again, the escalation of these things from exhortation to admonishment to correction to reproof to rebuke the escalation of things, there should be a lot more things on the front end and way less on the back end. There should be far more, ex- of all of them, the exhortation one should be the one we're doing all the time. We should constantly be exhorting each other, coming alongside each other, giving each other uh, recommendations and encouragements and, and guidance towards certain things. Um, but we also need to admonish each other. Hey, don't, you know, that's, I, I've seen other people go down this path. Hey, if you go down that way, that's going to be a bad thing for you. Don't, I don't, wouldn't want that to happen to you. We need to be doing, there needs to be a lot more of those. And then when it comes to the reproofs and the rebukes are way less. If you find yourself in an environment, a church community or any kind of environment where on the extreme end of these, these are happening quite regularly, often, or you're the person that's regularly quite often giving these things, something's going wrong. Something's going wrong, all right? There's a spectrum here. There's, there's, there's an expectation of how frequently these things should be happening. Now, to have a healthy community, these things will happen because people hurt each other, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. So for us to learn to have healthy relationships, we have to learn how to receive correction as well as how to give correction. And if we don't learn how to do it well, at the time that we're called upon to be in that, we might choke, we might screw it up, we might actually make things worse. I've seen when there's, there's been a necessary confrontation, but people weren't ready for it, people weren't in the right place for it, people's hearts, it, it went all wrong, went all bad. And so proactively, it's important for us as Christians to say, you know what, this is an area that actually I, I, I need to understand it Grow in it because it will happen. It is absolutely unavoidable. And if you're feeling stressed and pressure and anxiety about it, 
hey, that's why we're talking about it now rather than having to talk about it when there's a confrontation to have to deal with, which is way more stressful. Let's deal with it now. Let's look at it right now. Actually, this is a gift to us. This is a real gift to us, especially if we have confrontations, because in my experience, when confrontations go well, you actually deepen your relationship with somebody because you get clarity. You understand what was going wrong. Maybe it's, sometimes it's just bad communication. People just misunderstand talking past each other. And you, once you resolve that, you, you realize you're for each other, you care about each other, and you're able to own whatever part of it you need to own, and you're stronger. There's, it builds trust. So one of the things I try and tell myself is if there's ever tension with somebody or a confrontation coming with somebody or there's something coming, I try and tell myself, if this goes well, if I prepare well for this, man, I can get even closer to this person. We can come out of it on the back end, greater respect, greater love, greater understanding. That is such a gift to go through that. I mean, we, we know the greatest stories that are ever told are because people overcame the greatest conflicts and greatest trials, right? And the same thing in relationships. If we're always running away from conflict and running away from confrontations, we never grow in the maturity we need to actually get past those things and learn to really trust each other and hear each other and understand each other. We just get annoyed and then we just move on to the next thing. That's not maturity. That's not the way to handle it. Jesus tells us that we have to do this. If you're a Christian and you follow, which means you follow Jesus, you have to do it. In Matthew 18, Jesus says this, verse 15, says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. This is the goal. Here's the goal of any confrontation, no matter the spectrum, the five things we talked about, right? What are they again? Exhortation, admonition, correction, reproof, rebuke. Whatever stage it is, whether it's soft or all the way to the harsher end of it, the goal is to win somebody. That's the goal. The goal is to restore something that's been lost. It's redemptive. It's for somebody's good. So if we're going into it with the wrong motives, then we need to step back until we've got the right motives in this. The Apostle Paul agrees with Jesus in Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another there. So not only are we getting it from Jesus, we're getting it from Paul. This isn't something that's reserved for super, uber, uber duper, amazing mature Christians or Christian leaders or people that have been around for a while. This is, if you're, if you're day one, you became a Christian today, Apostle Paul, Jesus talking to you. Hey, we, 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 got, we have to share, we share this together. I had a situation years ago in the church where uh, there was a person in our church who this lady liked to prophesy over everybody and it was a problem. And, um, and it was overbearing. She just wanted to just give everyone words all the time. It's very overbearing. And uh, she got to a point where nobody would really talk to her. People avoided her a lot. And I had a conversation with her about it. And I had to say, listen, I think you've created this situation for yourself by how you've treated everybody. And no wonder people are avoiding you. And, she, and her response was, well, could you find out the people who I've hurt and then let them know I'm sorry? I was like, no, no, you have to do that. You, have, you think to yourself, well, when was I maybe a little too harsh? Or what? just go to people that you've been overbearing with or you know, say, how did I come across? Help me, you know, help me see it. Help me, help me understand it. And she wouldn't do it. She wouldn't do it. It's, it's tragic. Oftentimes, the intentional nature of a conflict is the very thing. Sometimes it's the only thing that can wake somebody up to what they're doing and how they're behaving and how they're struggling. Sometimes it's the only thing. I know this in my life. You know, I can go about my days feeling pretty good about myself. Pretty awesome. Man, I did that. I did that. Things are going great. I'm doing awesome. And then a pesky person comes along and says, you know, Matt, that really hurt when you did that. Or, Why did you say that? Or, Why? You said you would do this and then you didn't do it. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what is happening? And, but then you realize, oh, okay, of course I can't see these things because I'm me. And that's the truth for all of us. Of course I don't see it. They, they can see it because they're, they're them and they're, they're experiencing me and I'm not experiencing me in the same way they're experiencing me. And that, that's the sign of maturity is, is, is getting your perception of yourself as close to your understanding of how other people see you as you can. It's never going to be perfect, but truly trying to see through other people's eyes. It's so hard. It's so discomforting. 
to do it. But by God's grace, we have to do it. We absolutely need to do it. The Apostle Paul, he also says here in 2 Timothy 2, he says, the, says the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So confrontations are not supposed to be quarrelsome. We're not getting in arguments here, but kind to everyone. Able to, even if something's sharp, right? You can still be strong and sharp, but hey, there's still got to be grace and kindness to it. To everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So honestly, it is, it is the nature of sin when we're going off in our own direction, when we're blind to our own shortcomings, it's the nature of, of sin that sin is concealed. Sin is, is, is secret. It's, it's hidden. The things that we won't share, the things we won't talk about, the things that we, we gossip about, the things we, we complain about in private or whatever it is, it's all those things. They're, they're, they're in the shadows. They're hidden because we know if we were to expose them, we would be called out on them. We, 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 that's, we don't maybe know it up here, but we know it deep down. We know, yeah. And so the nature of sin is that, that it tends to be concealed. And so you, it's oftentimes the only thing that can, that can really break through our thick-headedness and our stubbornness is the healthy pressure of a brother or sister in Christ who loves us, who is willing to risk the relationship with us to call us out on something and say, hey, look, this is tough. This might be hard to hear, but I, there's something I need to share with you. Because when we shine the light on it, that is one of the only things that has the power to break its grip, to break the grip of sin. And that's, that's the goal there that Paul's writing to Timothy saying, you have to correct people. The goal is to, to bring them to that place of repentance. As in Hebrews chapter 3, it says, exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we're deceived by sin. We can't see it ourselves. And so therefore, we need each other. We have to have other people exhorting us, encouraging us, challenging us, correcting us, reflecting back to us how we came across. We just can't see it. We just can't see it. Now, to do this well, we have to have a high level of ownership of our own shortcomings. We have to. Because if we get into the habit of being the Christian police, where our task is to correct everybody else, and I just want to say, if you're the kind of person that, 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 that's like, why do people avoid me? Why can't I get closer to people? Why are there these issues, problems in relationships? I don't know the reason, but let me propose a question to you. Ask yourself, am I the Christian police? Am I the person always pointing the finger, always correcting, always pointing out, rather than paying attention, more attention to myself? Because if we're, how can we, Think about it like this. How can we approach somebody, we see something legitimate, and we always see problems with other people, right? Everyone else has a lot of problems. Can we all agree with that? Man, I tell you, you guys have a lot of problems. I just want to, just want to say that. Everyone's got, I got a lot of problems. I've, I've got so many problems. How can we address, you know, we see something serious enough, it's, it's big enough where we realize, ah, I, I need to address it. Oh, man, I don't want to address it, but I need to address it. I need to ask them about it. I need to say something. I need to encourage them or challenge them, something or other. I need to do something. How can we have an open door with that person if we do the same thing? Or if we, maybe it's not exactly the same thing, but there's a glaring problem in our own lives. You know how hard it is to expect somebody to accept your criticism if, if there's something glaringly obvious in your own life that you won't acknowledge or you're not willing to work on. It's, it's impossible. Actually, that's called hypocrisy, right? That's hypocrisy. Is I'm, I'm, I'm pointing the finger all the time, trying to correct. But when it comes to me, I either deny it, can't see it, won't receive it, not open to it. So in Matthew 7, I think it is, Jesus says this, Why do you seek... Uh, sorry, yeah, what, what, sorry, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take, Jesus, <laughs> you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. If we get to the point where we've owned our 
stupid stuff enough. We're humble enough. We're willing to receive correction enough. By God's grace, by his design, he will call us at times to speak into others' lives. We'll see something. Well, maybe someone will sin against us. And we say, man, our relationship has been torn apart because of this sin. I have to address it. Or we see others struggling and we have to approach and say, you've got to reconcile it. You've got to get together and figure it out. Or we, 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 somebody says something or we see somebody posts something online and we're like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? We've got to, got to address Online stuff always gets people in trouble, I'll tell you. Anything you post online. There's 80% chance that anything you post online is going to get you in trouble somehow. Um, if we get to that point, we, we feel it's necessary to have to approach somebody in some kind of correction, some kind of conflict, what we have to do is, the first thing we have to do is, before, before we even do it, approach somebody, is we have to clarify the facts. This is where I see most confrontations and corrections go wrong. Because a lot of it is based on hurt feelings. Well, I'm bothered, I'm irritated, I'm hurt, I'm harmed. And we're lashing out, I want to get back at somebody, I want to give them a piece of my mind, and it's not really a, a, a confrontation or correction with their helping the person in mind, it's much more of an emotional reaction. And so we've got to get rid of the gossip, the assumptions, the things that, you know, well, one time I heard, you know, 10 years ago, this person said that you did this, and that's similar to something you did yesterday. I actually had that exact situation. So what we have to do is we, we, we have to scrub out the assumptions. We have to scrub out the hearsay. And, and the things that are not, not grounded and not concrete, and we have to get to the facts. Who was there? What was said? What wasn't said? What was done? What wasn't done? What was communicated ahead of time? What was communicated afterwards? We have to get to those things. And this, these are the biggest mistakes that people make. They pile assumption on assumption and insult upon insult or... People are bothered by this. And, and honestly, if you don't deal with conflicts, if you feel offended or hurt by somebody, you don't deal with it, then what happens is that grows in your mind over time. So the thing that happened at one point that was a small thing now gets to become a bigger thing. Then every little thing the person does along the way gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, all because I didn't deal with the conflict in the first place. I didn't find the grace to deal with it. And now I'm just bothered. Now it's, now it's, now it's coming out in an inappropriate and ineffective way. And it's... We're expecting enormous maturity on people if we challenge them or correct them in a way that's poorly done. The person who responds well to a poor correction is the person you want to be friends with because that's a mature, healthy person who's able to see past the, 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 the poor way of doing it and they're able to get to the actual critique that they need to receive. Man, wow, if, if, if only we could all be there. If only, we could all, if only I could be there myself. I think we can borrow from, there's a principle given in the New Testament, actually, of how church leaders are supposed to be confronted. Because we all need accountability, we all mess up, we all screw up in different ways. And so there, there's specific directions and advice given for how do you confront somebody in, in Christian uh, leadership position, somebody in Christian, with Christian authority in the church, how do you confront that person? I think we can, there's a principle here that we can borrow from it, that we can apply in any kind of confrontation. So First Timothy chapter 5 talks about if there's going to be an accusation against a church elder, it says that it should not be given except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is the principle, this is the teaching of Scripture. So if, if a church leader is going to be accused of something, which we have all kind of examples from history, modern day examples of church leaders doing epically bad, horrible things, and they have to be confronted at times. I've had to be confronted about things at times. And so here's how you do it. It's got to be established on the evidence of two, at least two, best is three, witnesses. And I think that the principle here is that there's got to be some kind of corroboration to this. It can't be one person's opinion. It can't be one person's just angry, upset, I'm just bothered by this. It's got to be, actually, there's, there's some type of pattern here. Other people have experienced something similar, or other people saw the exact offense or heard the exact offense. And there's, so there's a, we can take that principle that's directed towards church leaders, but I think we can lean into it in how we might think about if there are confrontations in our workplaces, in our families, or between fellow believers, that if we just give 
give in to our own perceptions of things, we could get something wrong. We need some type of corroboration. We need to be able to see something outside of ourselves. Does it validate, or am I just am I being too sensitive? Have I misunderstood something? Have I got all the have I got some of the facts wrong about this? So the the idea of a confrontation is, it is a bit of a, it's a it's a conflict, right? It's kind of a battle. It's not like a a, a war, like um, you're fighting like two nations who are enemies fighting each other. A lot of talk of war these days. It's not, it's not quite like that, especially with Christians. We're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and so we want to, we don't want to approach it combatively, like I'm here to defeat somebody else, but it is a conflict because when you have to challenge somebody, there's, you're coming in hopefully with the truth and hopefully with the heart to restore somebody, and somebody else is being challenged by that, depending on how they respond, this can turn into a bit of a wrestling match, metaphorically speaking. And so, I think it's Proverbs 20 even says this about, about warfare. It says, uh, by wise guidance, wage war. By wise guidance. So nobody would go into any kind of battle or any kind of conflict without first saying, who has waged war well? Who has fought a battle and come out victorious? Who knows how to have these kind of conflicts or these kinds of confrontations? And so by wise guidance, the more severe and more tricky the confrontation needs to be, the more humility and the more preparation, how do we actually go about doing this? Because a confrontation is not about attacking someone. It's not about demeaning someone. It's not about getting revenge on someone. It's not about sticking it to someone. It's about restoring. It's about rescuing. We're told over and over again, we've got a list here of how to give corrections. So in Galatians 6.1, we're to do it in a spirit of gentleness, with complete patience, speaking the truth in love, in all wisdom. We're told that faithful are the wounds of a friend. So if you, a good friend will wound you. That means they're a good friend at times. They'll do it very well. Even in the harshest rebuke, rebuke uh, sorry, even the harshest rebuke should be under control. So Proverbs 29 says, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So even, even in the most severe, where it is a rebuke, where somebody really has to be corrected and you know, put in their place in one sense, maybe that's not the right phrase to use, but you understand what I'm, I'm talking about. Even in that, this is not madness. This is not out of control. This is careful, deliberate, cautious. A few examples from my own life. I remember years ago, uh, a work colleague of mine, I forget what I was saying, but she looked me in the eye and she said, you know, you sound very pious today. And maybe it was slightly an insult, I don't know, but she was right. And I forget what I was saying, but I, I realized, I was like, she's right, I I'm, I'm sound really self-righteous. And I apologized on the spot. I, you know, I, I, I hope I, I could respond that, that way every time uh, somebody corrects me. But I, I, she was right, I apologized on the spot. On the other side of this, a few years back, several years ago now in our church, we had, uh, there was a woman who wanted to volunteer with our kids, but we had some, a few misgivings about her, but we gave her a trial run a couple of times as an assistant with um, other children's teachers in there to see how it would go. Unfortunately, this, this woman had, um, there, were, there were some issues she had. She, was, she, she would tend to be aggressive. Um, she wasn't really a team player, had very very strong ideas about how she wanted to do things, uh, wasn't really a team player, but also just had the wrong temperament uh, to really work with children. So we, 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 we had that feeling that that might be the case going into it. We proved it out, and we just... So myself and the children's leader at that time, we knocked our heads together. We, 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 we prepared for the, the, the conversation. We weren't looking forward to it, but we had to sit down with this person, and we just had to very kindly but very clearly say, look, for these reasons, you know, Parents are not going to have confidence in you. The kids need to feel safe. This is not the thing for you, at least right now. But here's, how, here's a way that you could work towards improving these things, and we could reconsider it, but for now, it's not the right thing. And that was a tough conversation. It was a, she was very disappointed. She desperately wanted to do this. It wasn't the right thing. We didn't, didn't cherish that moment. I remember that, that leader afterwards, we, we, we debriefed, and we felt like we had done our best. We, we came away from it feeling... Yes, we, we, we've done the best we can in this difficult situation. Another example, where I was on the receiving end of this, 
Um, some of you might know, if you've been around Trinity for a while, some of you might know a guy called Kurt McCutcheon, who's a pastor in uh, Jubilee Church in St. Louis, one of our Confluence churches. And I had grumbled and complained about something that he was in charge of. And here's a lesson for you. If you grumble and complain, things get back to people. Doesn't it happen? It happens. You grumble and complain. So it got back to Kurt. So he called me, and he's not a confrontational person. He's a peacemaker. He's a nine on the Enneagram, so he's a peacemaker. So he, um, he called me, to his credit, and challenged me about it. Now, I felt very justified in my complaint. So initially, the conversation didn't go great. But I realized in trying to hear him out and him standing up to me in, in this confrontation, I realized the way I've gone about this was wrong. I caused some divisions, I caused some tensions, I caused some bad will, and he was doing the right thing. And I ended up, by the end of the call, I ended up apologizing, you're right, I went about this the wrong way, and I apologized for it, and we made it right, we restored it. And now, we've got a great friendship, he's a trusted advisor of mine, he knows more about me than most other, other than my wife, he knows a heck of a lot, probably maybe one of the people that knows most about me, uh, other than my, than my wife. And that's the power of being willing to face a confrontation and a conflict, to do it that way. Jesus gives us a process here of how to do it in Matthew 18. We looked at this actually early on in our series, but we've got to revisit it. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take two, uh, one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So a similar idea there. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we're given this process here. And the way to, the way to, to have the healthiest kind of church community is to follow the processes of Jesus and is to, first and foremost, to deal with our conflicts privately. So you know what we don't do? We don't get on social media, start blowing up social media. You're not going to believe what this person did or this person said or blah, 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 blah. Really unhealthy, really immature. Let's stop doing that. Let's not do that ever again. That just causes more pain. The first step from Jesus is you alone. We have to learn to have courage and go to somebody who we feel hurt by, who we felt they've sinned against us, getting the facts straight, getting our hearts straight, and confronting it with us, between us and them. If that fails, then Jesus says, well, here's what you do next, is you take one or two others. And you get a couple other people from church and get some help, and you do it together. If that fails, then tell it to the church, likely means tell it to the church leaders or those in church authority, and you escalate it up to those with more experience and who can help you. If that fails, then you have a, you know, some kind of meeting or confrontation or conversation. If that then fails then you cut the person out of your life. There's no alternative. There's simply no alternative. Now, that's rare. Though The reason Jesus gives those three steps is, by the time you get to the third one, you're going to, like 99% of the time, you're going to resolve it. It's going to come out well. It's going to, most people want to resolve things. Most people want to get rid of the, the tension and the, 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 the pain and the discomfort they feel about the conflict itself. So I, I don't want the social pressure. I, don't want the, I just want to resolve it. Let's figure it out. Let's get to the bottom of it. But if somebody is so prideful and arrogant and won't listen, then you have no choice. This person has created an offense. They've harmed the relationship. They won't admit it. They won't. And we, we've gone through every step that we can to reconcile this. You have to cut this person off. Listen, it's such a simple process. We should not try to improve upon it, and we should not ignore it. I've got to tell you, it's the rare Christian that actually does it this way, that does it the way of Jesus. Most of the time, we just get angry, we vent, we, we, we gossip, we post on social media, we leave, we storm out, we get mad, we slam doors. Whatever it is we do, we do anything except the words of Jesus. And the words of Jesus bring restoration. They're discomforting, but the more we can accept that we will need correction, our life, we're all, I don't know about you, but I'm always getting off course somehow, right? I'm going in a direction, and after a while I'm like, man, I, I drifted off course. I'm not doing as well as I used to be doing. I, I drifted off this way, or I drifted off this way. I, I constantly need to be corrected. 
And the more we can accept that, the more we understand, oh, I, I, I need to be more open to this idea throughout life. I need to accept the idea. I will receive correction. I will have those times where light gets shined into my heart and it's painful and it's humbling, but the, the more I can learn to receive it, the better off I'll be. Norman Vincent Peale, not a good person to quote from normally, but he said this one thing really well. He said, the trouble with most of us is that we would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. Now, I really like that thing he said. He's a positivity preacher, so I don't listen to anything else he says. But he was right about this. Maybe a couple other things he got right too, but that... It's so easy, you know, ruined by praise that we just, yeah, you know, we just want to hear the good thing, the right thing, the, the, the thing that beefs, beefs us up and builds us up. And, and we do need those encouragements, but we can be saved by, by criticism. We need to face criticism with this understanding that we need to go into it with a bit of a plan. So make a plan now. Make a determination now in your mind that there are going to be some people that will initiate conflict with you or a confrontation with you or, or some kind of criticism towards you and they'll do it just to insult you, just to hurt you. So you need, we need to decide now, hey, if that's the case, I'm not going to listen to it. If they're just here to insult me, I, I, some people are just going to do that. All right. We also need to plan ahead and decide now in our hearts. Some people will do it legitimately. We've done something wrong we need help with. But they're just going to be, a, and they're not going to do it right. They're going to be too strong. They're going to be nervous. They're going to get it wrong. They're going to... Um, oversell it to us, or they're going to, you know, maybe they're feeling hurt, and that's going to leak out a little bit. Um, and we need, to, we need to predetermine in our own minds, if that happens, I'm going to respond graciously and carefully to them. We have to ask ourselves this question. If someone's going to give us feedback about something, we have to ask ourselves this question, what do I have to lose? What do I have to lose? Do I have anything to lose? Actually, there's way more to gain. If I listen to them, I win their respect, even if they're wrong. If they're wrong, and I really take it on board and consider it and listen to it and say, maybe they've got something going on, but I conclude, no, I don't think it actually does have anything to it, then I've won their respect because I listen to them, but also I can actually be encouraged that at least I don't struggle with that issue. It's a win-win. But also, I don't have anything to lose. If they're right, if there's some truth to it, then I get to grow. I get to grow. And I get to not repeat this with somebody else in the future. If somebody has a criticism for us, oftentimes the first thing to say to them is, thanks for your concern. People are concerned. That's powerful, isn't it? To say, you know what, thank you for your concern. I do appreciate that. Thank you, thank you for that. We can tell people, you know, sometimes it's hard to hear so we can, we can respond to, with, to people saying, you know what, I need, I need to think on this. I'm not sure how to respond to it. Give me some time to chew on it. That's fine to say that. If we, after thinking on it and chewing on it for a bit, we don't, don't understand it, there's a lot of safety in sharing it with others who do know us. Not cherry-picking people we think will agree with us, but going to people who we know are mature but also know us. I think uh, we have a Proverbs 11 perhaps, says, in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. There's real safety in going to those who know us, who aren't going to lie to us, who aren't going to, you know, sugarcoat things, and saying, you know, this person, they, 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 they confronted me about this thing. I don't understand it. I don't quite see it. I'm not sure about it. What do you think? Do you think there's any validity to what this person's saying? That's powerful. Man, this is next level maturity right now. If only we could all get there. Should we make it a competition? Who can get there first? See who can get there first. The more we can soften our hearts, the more we'll, we'll be open to those words of, of criticism. And we can do this with ourselves. You know, as we notice, you know, I was, I was impatient. Or, I'm, man, I'm judging that person. As we can begin to, 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 to call ourselves out and say, yeah, I did, yeah, man, I'm messing up on that. Messed up. Yeah, I was irritable in that moment. Yeah, I shouldn't have done that. As we can call ourselves out and repent and say, God, forgive me for that, the more we do that, what we're going to find happening is we're going to find our hearts softening more and more. That when others bring it up, we say, yeah, you know what, That's, you're right. Because you can't argue, if, if you've already admitted that you've done it, it's pretty easy to say, I probably did it again. I probably did. And actually, that's the funny thing about any criticism 
is you can always say, well, there's probably some truth to it, no matter what. No matter what. You know, anytime someone brings a critique towards me, I'm like, well, okay, I hear you out, because there's going to be, there's going to, at least 1% of it's going to be, automatically, there's going to be something in there, because I'm a, I'm a frail, failed human being. What happened with Charles Simeon? <laughs> Agitated friend. Well, he wrote back, or he read the letter that was addressed to him, and he responded. He said to John Softly, from Charles Proud and Irritable, I most cordially thank you, my friend, for your kind and seasonable reproof. And then he also wrote to his friend, Mr. Hankinson, this next slide. He says, I hope, my dearest brother, that when you find your soul nigh to God, you will remember one who so greatly needs all the help he can get. What a great, humble response. Charles Simeon believed that adoration for God, love for God, enjoyment of God, grows out of the soil of humiliation. He spent a lot of his life a lot of his ministry going deep, deeply looking at his own shortcomings and his own failings because he wanted to be, he felt like if he, the more in touch he was with his own failings and his own shortcomings, the more honest he was about his own setbacks and his own shortcomings and problems, the, the greater his view of God would be. The more he would understand the grace that God extended to him, the more he would understand all of that. And it gave him a superpower. It gave him a superpower. It meant that when he received criticism, he could respond humbly like this. Now, what of his, his failing voice? Remember, he lost his, basically lost his voice. His voice became a whisper. And this had been going on for years. I think it was now by, the year was 1819. He was 60 years old. And he was crossing the border from England to Scotland. And miraculously and inexplicably, as he crossed the border, his voice was restored to him. He suddenly found years, many years had gone by of this weak, whispering, struggling voice in the pulpit, in his counseling, pastoring of people, struggling with his voice. Suddenly at the age 60, it was healed. He was overjoyed, amazed, God had divinely healed him. But also in that moment, he felt God rebuke him. He felt God rebuke him. Here was his plan. His plan was, when I get to 60, I'm going to retire. Life's been hard, ministry's been hard. I'm going to retire at 60 and have a bit of an easier life. It's going to be me time. It's going to be all about me. And he felt like God said to him, as his voice was restored, that God told him that he had taken away his voice over the last several years because of this attitude. And now that he was 60, God was calling him. He'd restored his voice to say, you've got to get back into... This was when you were supposed to retire, but that wasn't my plan. You've got to get back into ministry, back into preaching... And he preached faithfully for another 17 years. He was an absolute champion for biblical truth. He lived long enough to be able to hand, I think it was uh, King William IV in uh, 1833, he handed him the 21 completed volumes of his collected sermons. Here's a quote from Charles Simeon. He says this, he says, I have continually had such a sense of my sinfulness as would sink me into utter despair. If I had not an assured view of the sufficiency and willingness of Christ to save me to the uttermost. is a man whose whole ministry was defined by needing to be humiliated and corrected in order to understand what God had truly done for him. The more we know Christ, the more we can receive correction. In fact, the entry point of the Christian faith is a confrontation, isn't it? The Christian faith, God has to come to us and say, you've got all this gunk in you, you've got all this sin in you, it's not good, you need to be cleansed. And we enter the Christian faith by admitting to that. That's what the cross is. The cross is the clash of two kingdoms coming together. And Jesus didn't exert a confrontation over us in a macho way. Jesus didn't come as a UFC fighter, so I'm going to wrestle you to the ground and dominate you and defeat you. It was humble power. It was humble power. Jesus wasn't afraid to have that resolute spirit that was humble yet powerful. Listen, if we allow evil to continue in our own lives or the lives of others, our weakness spreads more evil. 
Therefore, are we culpable? Are we responsible for the spread of evil in the world if we say nothing, if we do nothing, if we allow it to continue? Jesus was strong enough that he would not let it continue in our lives. He confronted us in humble, gracious love to call us out, to call us into a relationship with him, to show us how much he loved us. Let's respond to Jesus today. Let's sing to him. By his grace, he saved us. He confronted us. He challenged us. And he died in our place.